Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Jesus bore his cross for you and for me. Jesus bore his cross for others, not for himself. And Simon bears the cross for Jesus. And when we think of bearing our cross, we're not to think of some difficulty that we go through or endure for ourselves, but those things we go through for the sake of others. Well, it is Friday for us here and now, and we are looking at a very important Friday many, many years ago. In today's broadcast, we have part one of Pastor Sam's message, Jesus Crucified. We will be finishing up Luke chapter 23, and we're gonna start today in verse 26. The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We pick up at verse 26. The title of our study, Jesus Crucified. Luke 23, we'll be looking at the rest of the chapter, beginning here in verse 26. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and, they, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what? will be done in the dry. First thing we take notice of is this guy, Simon. He's a Cyrenian, we're told. He was no doubt in the city for the Passover celebration and they grab him and under Roman law, they could compel anyone to carry a burden for someone else. Jesus had fallen under the weight of the beam or the cross. So they take Simon, they say, hey, you carry this cross for him. He is the first in scripture to literally, physically, demonstrably take up his cross and follow Jesus. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, it's not his cross, it's Jesus' cross. Exactly. And when Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, well, we need to go to the cross of Jesus to really understand what that means. Now track with me for a minute. It's very important. Jesus bore his cross for you and for me. Jesus bore his cross for others, not for himself. You see, the whole point of the cross is it's the testimony to that, that the wages of sin, or in this case, crimes against Rome, is death. And so Jesus bears the cross for us. And Simon bears the cross for Jesus. And when we think of bearing our cross, we're not to think of some difficulty that we go through or endure for ourselves, but those things we go through for the sake of others. Like Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Many of you familiar with the story, imprisoned ultimately. And then he, he rises to second in command in all of Egypt. And when his brothers stand before him after his father's death, thinking that he is going to now pay them back and teach them a lesson, they fear for their lives. And he says, hey, 
You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He sent me ahead of you to save many souls alive. He understood the cross he bore was for the sake of his brethren and for the sake of the nation that would come forth from his brethren. So the, the point here is we have a visual, we have an illustration of something Jesus tells us that we should be doing. Now, the devastation that he speaks of here in verse 29, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breast which never nursed. Those days, this prophecy literally fulfilled in 70 AD. Titus surrounds the city. The Romans conquer it, murdering and massacring multitudes. They burn the city. They destroy the temple. So we have a literal, physical, local fulfillment of this prophecy. But there's yet a, another fulfillment of this prophecy in the future. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 15 has this to say, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb and from the great day for the great day of his wrath is come and who is able to stand two things. They'll cry out even as, well, they did in fulfillment of this prophecy of Jesus in 70 AD. Yet future, during the time where the lamb is breaking the seals and devastation is the result on earth. Interesting concept, wrath of the lamb. You ordinarily wouldn't put those two together. Lambs are so non-threatening, but the same one who came and suffered and died for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, will be breaking the seals, pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Well, there were two others, we read, criminals led with him to be put to death, verse 32, and when they'd come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand, and the other on his left. Two criminals crucified with Jesus. We know there were three crosses because there were supposed to be three criminals crucified that day. We saw at the end of our last study, Barabbas was set free and he becomes the first, another physical example of the reality of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus goes to the cross in the place of Barabbas. Now, here's what we don't know about Barabbas. We know he was set free, though he was a murderer. We know he was set free, though he was a rebel. What we don't know is if he ever repented and surrendered his life to the one who went to the cross for him. And it's important to know, and we'll see it so clearly, that it's not enough to get off or, or get by or to think we got away with something. No, we want to come to the cross ourselves and confess that the one who hung on it died there for us and for our sins. The place is called Calvary. If you get to Israel, you'll see it. There's there near the garden tomb. It's called the place of the skull and there's good reason for it. You can see in the stone themselves, the eye sockets and the nose and it just looks like a skull. It's a, a little bit disconcerting today because there's like an Arab bus station right next to it and a lot of chaos and confusion. But in those days, this was the outskirt of town and and the place of the skull. Well, it was on a main crossroads 
and, and people would be coming from anywhere and everywhere. And as they entered, they would pass by. And so they would crucify there because, well, one of the things they did, and we'll see how important this is to us, is they would put the, the criminal's charges on the cross. And so people would walk by and they'd see murderer. This is what happens to murderers under Roman justice. Rapist. This is what happens to rapists under Roman justice. And, and so the idea being not only did they believe that these people, of course, would never do such a thing again. That's a natural deterrent when you take out the person who's done such things. But, but that others would look and consider and hopefully, hopefully not follow in these footsteps. Four words are used here to describe the most horrific means of execution ever. They just say, there they crucified him. But Psalm 22 a prophetic messianic psalm in verse 16 says, they pierced my hands and feet. We're going to consider portions of that psalm today, but I want to encourage you to, to spend some time in it later today, tomorrow morning. Familiarize yourself with it. Why? Because Psalm 22 does for us what none of the New Testament accounts really attempt to do, and that is describe the crucifixion itself. The amazing thing is that David is the author, of course, co-author, all scripture given by inspiration of God, but co-authoring with the Holy Spirit as he writes the things that, well, Psalm 22 point us to the person and, and the suffering and the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So two criminals, one on either side, they come to Calvary, they crucify him there, the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. Now, at the foot of the cross, there were well, people who mocked and hated and reviled Jesus. We'll see that in a moment. But there were also people there who loved him. And among them, there were some of the gals named Mary. Now, when you read about Mary, it's like when we talked last time about Herod, how there was Herod the Great. And then there was the Herod that followed and another Herod. And well, you know, it's like George Foreman. We used him as the illustration, you know, it's boys are George, George, George and George. And and so that's where Herod was at. That's where George Foreman was at. Well, there were many Marys in that day. Very popular name. We know the the sister of Lazarus and Martha. She was a Mary. We know that that Mary Magdalene, of course, named Mary. We know that the mother of Jesus was named Mary. We know that James and John's mother was named Mary. And she's the one who came with her boys at one point saying, hey, when you come into your kingdom, would you let my boy sit at your right hand and, and your left hand? And Jesus, hearing the question, turns to them and says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you Drink the cup that I'm going to drink. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'll be baptized with? And it's a paraphrase, but their response is like, hey, sure, whatever it takes. We just want the position. Well, he goes on to say, well, you will experience the cup and the baptism, but those positions are reserved for whom the Father has reserved them. The point is, there as she stands with the others, and she was there at the foot of the cross. I wonder if it entered her mind. What was I thinking? What was I asking? You see, this is the way, this is the place, this is the hour that Jesus will come into his kingdom. It's a dramatic and radical reality because, well, in 
Luke's gospel earlier on, chapter 9, verse 30. We read of the transfiguration and, and we know that Peter, James, and John were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah were there. Moses representing the law, Elijah the prophets. And we, we read, read back in uh, Luke 9, 30, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he would was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now listen, decease and accomplishment, those don't ordinarily go together. In fact, the word decease means death and departing. So when you think in terms of, okay, the day I die, I don't know that we would consider that an accomplishment. It's something we're trying to avoid. And so how is it that Jesus' death is an accomplishment? Well, it's all tied to why he died and, and how he died, the purpose of and for which he died. Well, I had an experience just the other day that was a little bit like this, far less severe, of course. A, a friend of mine who helps me with some landscaping sent me to get some tall dwarf fescue. And, and fescue, of course, is just grass and grass seed is what I was picking up. But, but when he said it to me, I said, tall dwarf sounds like an oxymoron. And, and so I go to the store and sure enough, when I say it, the guy looks at me and says, Tall dwarf sounds like an oxymoron. I'm like, that's what I thought. And then I thought I was just being set up, you know, I'm looking for the hidden camera or something. And but but a guy who'd worked there longer said, no, they, they have tall dwarf fescue. The fescue's four inches tall. The dwarf is one inch tall. The, the tall dwarf is two inches tall. And I'm like, do you know dwarf is politically incorrect anyway? But uh, the, the bottom line is, is that it's an oxymoron. The two don't seem to connect. And when you think of death and accomplishment, well, they don't seem to connect until you find this out. The word for decease or death or departing, if you saw it in the Greek, you would recognize it. The, the letters are similar enough to ours. It's the word exodus. So Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus to talk about his Exodus. Now that's an accomplishment because it immediately takes us back to Moses who leads the children of Israel out of the slavery and bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. So his exodus set everyone who believed free. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. That's what he accomplished on the cross. He brought us freedom from sin, the slavery to sin and selfishness and, and Satan. So here Jesus continues. In verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the gospel writers tells us they cried out, He saved others himself. He cannot save. And you know, that was absolutely true. He saved others, but had he saved himself, he couldn't have saved us. No, he said, For this purpose I've come. Not to be served, but to, to serve and, and give my life a ransom for many. So Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This scene, by the way, and these things that Jesus is praying, well, 
they would have been oddly familiar to those familiar with Scripture. So any of them who had been raised, and that would be all of the Jewish males, certainly, raised in the Scripture, well familiar with the Psalms and the Proverbs and, well, the books of Moses and the prophets. And in any case, Psalm 22, again, this, this Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Well, it's one of the seven cries from the cross. It's one of those things that, that, that Jesus had to say from the cross. In fact, if we have the, the order correct, and we'll look at the seven this Friday again at Good Friday, this is the first thing. They hear Jesus cry from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, lest anyone misunderstand we're not saved because we were ignorant and unbelieving and because Jesus felt bad or the Father felt sorry for us. No, consider who's saying this and from where. It's Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross, bleeding and dying for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins. So Paul could later say, we've been bought with a price and we are not our own. He was dying for us. So he could say, Father, forgive them. It's true they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't process that they were crucifying the Son of God. But they're not forgiven because they were ignorant. They're forgiven because, well, if they repented and if they confessed and if they believed, the, the death that Jesus died made that forgiveness possible. Scriptures couldn't be clearer on this. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not because of our ignorance, but because of the cross. Nevertheless, God takes into account our ignorance and unbelief. Paul tells Timothy that he himself was a former blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man. And he said, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He obtained mercy. Yeah, but how? He asked for God's forgiveness. He recognized who the Lord was and he surrendered his life to the Lord. He confessed his sin. And we're going to get a beautiful illustration in a moment from one of the thieves on the cross of this very reality. Paul also in Athens, and let me read it to you. It's Acts 17, verse 28. He's there talking to some of the Athenian philosophers and, and he's speaking of Jesus says, in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent." That's really the key. That was John the Baptist's message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the first thing Jesus cried after his baptism and temptation as he came out into the wilderness. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when he cries, Father, forgive them, it's not just because they didn't know or because we didn't know. Oh, we're forgiven because of what he did, the suffering, the blood, the death he died for us. Psalm 22, verse 18 is quoted in this short section. They divided his garments and cast lots. It's there here in verse 34. And, and Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All those who see me ridicule me. He trusted in the Lord. Let him 
rescue him. We see that here in the passage as well. So what's happening is that everything transpiring is is fulfilling the messianic prophecies of Psalm 22. In fact, the fourth of the seven things Jesus has to say from the cross, Matthew 27, 46 tells us, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now listen, that is verse one of Psalm 22. I don't know what David was thinking as he wrote it. I know he was running from Saul. I know he was hiding out. I know he was persecuted. But when he begins to say, they, they, they cast lots for my clothing, they pierce my hands and feet, I wonder as he wrote those things, if he wondered, what am I writing? And what does this mean? And, and what's the significance of it? David was suffering, but not in the ways we, we read of in that particular passage. No, he was writing about Jesus. And so Jesus, and I believe this wholeheartedly, wasn't just having a moment of, of doubt or, you know, anxiety as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was absolutely in his right mind. He will entrust John into his mother's care and his mother into John's care from the cross. Jesus knew what he was saying. He was quoting the first verse of the one psalm that described exactly what was taking place, not only at the cross, but at the foot of the cross, the words of the people, the actions of the people, the suffering he was enduring, so that if they could go to Psalm 22, and many would have immediately, just in their own minds, they didn't have the scriptures as we do, they couldn't just pull out a pocket Bible and say, well, look at Psalm 22. No, they had to go to the, the synagogue and they had to ask for the scroll and most of them wouldn't have been able to read it anyway. We're so blessed in this generation to have the word of God and such access to it. But the point is they still would have gotten it. In fact, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Do you know where that comes from? Psalm 23. I heard many of you say it and all of you should know it. By the way, if you're not familiar with the Psalms, familiarize yourself. Why? Because when you suffer, and we all suffer, Psalms will bring great comfort and consolation. And since I was a very young Christian, and that's been a very long time because I was actually a young man at that point. Since then, I have been reading through the Psalms and Proverbs every year. And I do Psalm 1 on the, the first of every month and Psalm 31 and 61 and 91. And I think it's 121. But, you know, I, that, you just add 30 to each one. The math, you know, is more than I can deal with right now. But... But the reality is then on, on the second, you just do Psalm 2 and, and 32 and 62 and so on and so on. You do that every month. You go through all the Psalms, read one chapter of Proverbs every day on that same date. And you'll go through all the Proverbs every month. The Proverbs will give you the wisdom you need to, to deal with all life's issues. And the Psalms, the comfort you need to deal with all life's trials and pain. Well, he cries, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He also cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you'll read all Psalm 22, you'll realize Jesus knew the Father hadn't forsaken him. There are too many things in that Psalm that say he knew the Father's eyes were on him. His heart was with him. He was fulfilling the very purpose for which he came and became one of us. Well, Revelation 13, 8 calls Jesus the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. 
This deeply meaningful title for Jesus reminds us that God's plan for redemption was set in place before he even created the beings who would be redeemed. Now think of this. Jesus spent his entire life knowing where he would die, when he would die, and maybe more importantly, how he was going to die. And he spent that lifetime amongst those he was going to die for. And I am sure he made many friends and loved many people along the way. But I also know that he saw a lot of ugliness. And despite what he saw in this world, he never deviated from his course and he never weakened in his resolve to do what he came to do. Now, I don't know about you, but the longer I have to wait for something unpleasant, the more I think of ways to get out of it. But not our Lord. He was so committed in his pursuit of our redemption, he stayed the course his entire life. Not just his earthly life either. He did so from the beginning of time. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.